We will be in Luke chapter 6, 17 through 26. But I want to begin not by reading the passage, but by introducing it, and then we'll read it. You may be familiar with these words. In the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As you know, those are the well-known words from the opening of the U.S. Declaration of Independence. And they declare three unalienable rights. And the last one is the pursuit of happiness. But that really begs the question, what pursuits will actually bring us happiness? Even Benjamin Franklin said the Constitution only guarantees you the right to pursue happiness. You have to catch it yourself. And though we want happiness, as humans we're really quite bad at getting it. We think this thing will bring us pleasure, lasting happiness, and in fact it brings us misery. October 31st, the children get their bags filled with hoards of candy, and they're on cotton candy heaven clouds, enjoying each bite after the next. Nothing could be better than one more and one more and one more till they're rolling on the floor, and they can't shake the agony that's in their stomach. As adults, we're more sophisticated. We don't overeat till we puke. We only eat a little bit more each meal and snack and dessert till years later we go, oh, I'm having health problems and I don't like the way I look. Or as adults, we think if we can find the one, that one person who completes me, then I'll be satisfied. And yet, over half of Americans have the one they think who will satisfy them be the one they want to get away from, and they divorce them. And that's just the ones who get divorced. Probably more in marriages who are sorry they picked that one. And so though we have the freedoms to pursue happiness, we're not very good at pursuing it. Now, if there's anything that could describe our modern society, it's that we think everything needs to be proved scientifically. And scientists research this too. One website says, we are sitting on a growing mountain of valuable studies from social science to neuroscience, but are unable to process the information. To use an analogy, we're sitting on a mountain filled with deeply buried veins of gold, and yet we're unable to extract it. We know how to do it, but we don't have sufficient manpower. We have analyzed and reviewed hundreds of studies on happiness, but we need to analyze thousands. Well, that in and of itself is fascinating. We need scientific studies to show us how to be happy. So like thousands of human history, no one could find happiness until scientifically we could prove it. But this is really nothing new. Even over 3,000 years ago, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man. Oh, that's going to be great. And then Proverbs says, but the end is death. You know, we are given the ability to pursue happiness, but we don't do it well. And so this morning we're asking the question Jesus is putting before us, what will truly make us happy? And Jesus is going to give us four descriptions of the blessed life, or I would say the happy life, and the cursed life. But it's really odd because the descriptions of what he says will make you happy are what we would say 
that's a horrible life. And the things that Jesus says, well, that is the horrible life, we'd go, that's the life I'm actually pursuing. And so let's read, what does Jesus say is the happy life and the cursed life? Luke 6, verses 17 through 26. And he came down, being Jesus, came down with them, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on disciples, his disciples, and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you when you weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, so for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If you have a bulletin, laid this out very easily. I'm coming off sabbatical, so I couldn't get a third point, only two. The happy life and the cursed life. So first, in verses 17 through 23, we're given the happy life. And he starts with a kind of a synopsis of Jesus' ministry in 17 through 19. People are coming to them. He's healing people of diseases and sickness and casting out demons. He's teaching them. And then in verse 20, after giving this broad, this general description of Jesus' ministry, the camera zooms in, so to speak, on one of the times Jesus speaks. Because Jesus lifts up his eyes on his disciples and he begins to teach them. Now it's important to note this is not a generic group of people. It's Jesus talking to his disciples. And we know it's his disciples also because in verse 22, these are people who are persecuted because of their connection to the Son of Man. And that's important because Jesus is not giving here steps or actions or things you must do to become one of his disciples. Many people interpret it this way. They see it almost like the five pillars of Islam. Hey, these are the five things you need to do so Allah will forgive you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is speaking to people who are already his followers and showing them, look, in this life, you need to realize if you follow me, it may not seem that things are going well, but actually, you're going to be blessed for it. And if you pursue blessing now, you might actually, you won't actually get it. So Jesus is wanting to give his disciples eyes to see past the present appearance to the future reality. And the first thing Jesus says is blessed are the poor. Earlier, Ty read for us from Matthew 5, 1 through 12, a similar teaching. And yet, you may have noticed there's differences. <laughs> there's similarities between them. And now for some, they are hush. Another example that the Bible is clearly an error. I mean, same sermon. And here Jesus says one thing in another sermon. He says something completely different. The Bible can't really be true. Look, it's, it can't even get the same sermon right. Well, we need to really back up and notice three things. First, Jesus often teaches all day long. For example, when he fed the 5,000, they were with him so long that they had to give him a meal. 
Now, you could read the whole Sermon on the Mount, which goes from Matthew 5 to the end of Matthew 7, and it would take you about 10 minutes. Well, if Jesus taught all day, then the Sermon on the Mount is really not everything he said. It's a summary. It's a condensation. So if after the sermon today I said, hey, David, what would you hear in the sermon? And he summarized it, and then I went and asked Caleb, different summaries wouldn't mean I said different things. It would be a different point of view, a different angle. Or as well, we have to remember that when someone speaks often, they don't always say things exactly the same. You know, as I've preached here, I've had to speak on the same topic at different times. And though what I say is the same in regards to content, I don't always word it exactly the same. And third, we have to remember that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, but the Gospels, the New Testament, are written in Greek. And when you translate something, you have to choose, am I going to go word for word with what they say, or am I going to give the thought? So, for example, if I said, boy, it's raining cats and dogs outside, and you want to translate that to someone to a different culture, you could say, in their language, it's raining cats and dogs outside, and they might look outside and go, what's he mean? Or you could say, oh, he just said it's raining really hard outside. Well, did they lie in their interpretation or translation? Well, no. They were just saying, this is what he means. We're going to get past their cultural idiom. And all that really comes to point here, because in Luke, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. But in Matthew, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So is this a contradiction? Well, no, not at all. It could be that this is a different way of summarizing. It could be that it was actually two different sermons. Or it could be that this is one giving the literal. This is what Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And the other goes, well, what Jesus means is blessed are the poor in spirit. And we know in spirit is what Jesus is saying. Because as Jesus taught, he constantly affirmed the truthfulness of the Old Testament scriptures. And as he taught, he would say, these will always be fulfilled. Well, the Old Testament scriptures never say socioeconomic financial poverty is a blessing. In fact, they tend to say the opposite. God blessed Abraham. He blessed Job. He blessed Solomon with what? Wealth. Well, if it's a horrible thing to have wealth, then God wasn't blessing those men at all. As well, in Proverbs 30 verse 8, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. The Old Testament did not seem being financially poor as a blessing in and of itself. So Jesus is not saying here, you're blessed just if you're poor. No, he's saying if you're poor in spirit. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It is the realization of one's desperate need for help. It's the humility that realizes we need God for we are weak we're broken, we're needy on our own. King David expresses this in Psalm 40, verse 17, by saying, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Yet, this is really the opposite of what humans value. And this isn't just our age. In the ancient world, when this was written, they thought humility of spirit was actually, that's the kind of mentality that a slave should have. We don't want to be like that. We want to be people of domination people who are proud and yet jesus says no you should be poor in spirit even today we're told trust yourself you can be anything you want to be you're all that you need you are enough and jesus is saying no you need to realize that you're not enough on your own you need me now why in the world 
Would it ever be a blessing to admit, I am not enough, that I'm, I'm needy, I'm a broken person? Well, we could look at what Paul says, that when we boast in our weaknesses, then the power of Christ can reign in us. But that's not what Jesus says here. The reason Jesus gives here is when we show our humility, when we're poor in spirit, then we will have the kingdom of God. Not just in the future, we have it now. And this is really the case because God has always chosen to bless the humble. Isaiah 66, 2 says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, God's blessings come not to those who have it all together, but those who admit they don't. You know, the illustration has been given that as a church, we should be like an ER. Well, what goes on in ER? Well, in an emergency room, there's a whole group of people. And they're probably there for various reasons. Some of them probably not the same. But they all realize we all in here, we're sick. We need help. None of us is in here because we're actually really healthy right now. But sadly, what happens in churches is we treat the church more like a job interview where we all come, we put our best appearance on, and we're trying to look better than all the others because we want the job. We want them to accept us because we're better than everyone else. And here Jesus is saying we should be more like that ER room, that we are sick. We came here because we need help, not we came here because we have it together and we're better than everyone else. And so don't believe the lie that you're enough. Realize the gospel truth that when we admit that we're not enough, we can have Christ's power in that and that God will honor and bless us. In fact, he gives his kingdom to those who admit that. Now, it's interesting. If you look down at verse 21, both of those blessings are given to those who hunger or weep now. But it doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit now. And that's the case because being poor in spirit is never something that will move beyond. You know, even when we're redeemed and we're in glory, we're still going to be desperately in need of God. We'll never get to a point where we can go, okay, now I'm self-sufficient. Now I can live by my own strength. We will one day be completely satisfied. We will one day no longer mourn, but we will also forever need the Lord and His strength. Now, before moving on, we should note that while God never praises being poor in regards to finances in and of itself, the Bible often says, and God often says, that being poor financially can help your spiritual antenna, so to speak, be more attuned. Thus, Proverbs 16, 19 says, It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the crowd. You're probably familiar with the time when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus was trying to show him the way to life. That's what the man said he wanted. And yet when Jesus told him, basically your wealth is in the way, he went away sorrowful. And Jesus then said, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And that should really be extremely concerning for us. As we compare ourselves in life, we often compare to what we see. And unless there's something in y'all's financial situation that I know, don't know about, none of us in here are wealthy in our society. 
We can look at the people who have the bigger houses and the vacation homes and all these things, and we're not wealthy. But if we change the comparison, and we look around the globe, and we look throughout time, every single one of us in here are in the 1%. We're in the wealthy of the wealthy. Well, how can I say that? We're not that wealthy. Well, we have homes where we can set the temperature, and it's that way whenever we want. People throughout time would think that's only something that royalty could have. We can walk at any time and open up pantries and refrigerators with many options of meals we can have. Even today, some people don't know what they're going to eat tonight. We have savings accounts. We have so much leisure time, we have to invent more and more games just because we're bored. We don't even know what to do with our time. We are wealthy. And we have to ask, is our wealth, again, compared to people in our society, it's not that much, but compared across time and the globe, is great. Is that distracting us? Is that making us think, I got life under control. I don't really, I'm not really that dependent on God. Is it masking our true and desperate need that we have of Him? Well, second in verse 21, Jesus says, Blessed are the ones who hunger now for they will be satisfied. Your hunger like poverty carries both physical and spiritual connotations. You know, the physically hungry person longs for the food to fill them. You know, their stomach is gnawing. Their sunken, hollow eyes are craving for food, for the nourishment they need. If we're poor in spirit, as Jesus just said, then we hunger for what we know we can't get by ourselves. In fact, we crave and long for God, for only He can satisfy us. Now, there are many ways on earth to pursue satisfaction, but the one who's poor in spirit knows that they won't ultimately satisfy and they won't last. Yet again, Jesus is saying something that seems so backwards. The person who is hungry is blessed. Yes, for their hunger is only for now. It will not last forever they will be satisfied. And Jesus' disciples, and we need to realize their present situation is not the full reality. They can sacrifice something good now because they know something better awaits them. And we do this all the time. You're going to go out to eat to a nice restaurant. So though we love things like Czech's Party Mix, we don't sit there and nibble on it all day because we want to really enjoy the meal when we get there. So we sacrifice something good. The Czech's is good. But the fancy restaurant is going to be better. We live in an apartment that's not as nice as we can afford because we know, you know, I could live in a nicer one, but I want to save up because I want to get a house. The house is the better thing in the future, so I sacrifice now. When I was in high school, I would go to a friend's farm and I would help him some. And his elderly father would often say to me, do you know the difference between a good meal and a great meal? And then he'd pause wait for the dramatic effect, and then he would say, two hours. In two hours after working on the farm, you're no longer just wanting a meal, you're craving a meal, and it went from good to great. Well, Jesus says, those who hunger for him now will one day be completely satisfied, as when they're at a rich feast. It'll go from being just something that's good, but because they've waited not just two hours, but their life, it'll be a great feast. Psalm 107 verse 9 says, 
for he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. You know, throughout scripture, God gives us this image of a feast when we're reunited with him. Isaiah 25, 6 is one of them. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich, rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Well, third, Jesus says, blessed are the ones who weep now, for they shall laugh. And we're not told why these people weep. But if we're looking at the context, it's because of their connection to Christ. And probably because they're getting injustice. They're not treating being fairly because of their connection to him. Now, we scarcely know that. But if you read through Acts, if you read through church history, you listen to other Christians around the globe today, they have had to suffer. They've had to weep now because of their connection to Christ. As you read through the Psalms and other parts of Scripture, often the cry is heard, How long, O Lord? Yet Jesus says, Though they weep now, they will laugh. We get a glimpse of this even in the history of the nation of Israel. They were taken into exile. There's a whole book about it, lamentations, weeping. But then they're brought back. And Psalm 126 verses 1 and 2 says, When the Lord restored the fortune of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Now this life, can be filled with sorrow. And even Jesus knew the pain of losing a loved one. Yet God will wipe away the tear, the tears from our eyes. Though we weep, and we, the weeping may tarry for the night, joy comes with the morning. And so for these first three beatitudes, as they're sometimes called, Jesus has talked about how we should think about ourselves, how we should think about our condition. But in this fourth one, he kind of gives a different angle. And that is how some people will react to them or react to Jesus' disciples. And verse 22 says, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Again, this is pretty radical. That's not what we want. We seek for people to accept us. We want to be thought of as we're morally upstanding citizens, that we're good people. And yet Jesus says we're to rejoice when people persecute us, when they attack us wrongly due to our connection to him. Now, in our country, we have seen rising verbal attacks against Christians for what they believe, what charitable organizations they support, even what schools they choose to help. And I think all the words Jesus said here could be applied, hated, excluded, or at least attempted to so far, reproached, cursed as evil. And for many of us, as we've talked, as I've talked with you, as I've talked about it, our thought has been fear, apprehension, concern. Our thought has been, woe is us. But Jesus actually says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. The woe is not now. The woe is to come. And that is when everyone speaks well of us. We are blessed and told to rejoice. Now it's interesting. This is the only command in the whole section. Why should we rejoice? Well, he gives us two reasons. First, he says, your reward in heaven will be great. 
What Jesus is trying to tell them is three things. First, God is noticing. He sees you being persecuted, your name being reviled. Second, he's going to reward. He didn't just notice. He is going to reward faithfulness, even though it brings suffering. And three, he's wanting them to know it's not going to continue. One day the persecution, the suffering will go away. And then you'll receive the joy that he gives. You'll receive your reward in heaven. Earlier we read 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. Paul says it this way, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I mean, is this like really possible to like rejoice in suffering? Well, Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 41, it says, The leaders beat the apostles and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. The apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So Christ is not here saying we have joy in that we're being persecuted in and of itself. We're not masochists. We're not wanting to get persecuted. But there's joy that his name is being upheld. His name is being honored. And as well, there's a, an assurance because look, second motivation, this is what happened to the prophets. Don't think we're doing wrong if we're being persecuted. In fact, it might be the evidence you're doing what's right. That's what the prophets did and they were persecuted for it. And as we've noted several times already, this is not the way we think. Now, I somewhat dreaded this Sunday because as I was on my sabbatical, I knew where I was in Luke and I knew this was what I was going to have to preach on. And I, I don't necessarily always like these things. I'm very prone not to believe a lot of this, if I'm honest. You know, in my worst moments, I like to throw pity parties. They're not that great a party, so I normally do them by myself. But I sit there and I talk about all the things I've sacrificed and all the things I've done for God and what woe is me. And I, oh man, my life's horrible. And yet, Jesus is saying here, no. He's noticing. He's rewarding. He's not just saying, well, you need to suffer but one day you'll be saved eternally, so don't worry about it. No, he says, pursue him now with your whole heart. Sacrifice the good things now, because something better awaits. And yet, for me, maybe for you, sometimes we have doubts. Is it really worth it? You know, I don't know what you give, but if you give a tithe, I mean, for most of it, that's a lot of money. Boy, our lives could change financially if we just didn't give it. Is it really worth it? Maybe we could skip a couple months. A whole Sunday morning free? I'm, I'm busy. I could use a Sunday morning. Is it really worth it? Uh, go to meet with that person again. They always are so discouraged. I've never helped them. Why am I going to keep doing this? I could use that time to do something else. Is it really worth it? Oh, to keep standing for these morals. Boy, I might get a lot of trouble at work if people know I actually believe that. Is it really worth it? And Jesus is showing his disciples, no, it is worth it. I'm telling you now that these bad things are going to come on earth. But realize that's the blessed life. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy following me because you know that will bring lasting happiness. Yet not only are these words true, 
they're also wonderful. They're wonderful because these can apply to every single person. You know, if happiness can only be found in possessions, then only rich people can really have happiness. If happiness can only be found if you have control and power, then happiness is only for those in authority. If happiness can only be found if you're healthy and fit, then the physically disabled, those who don't have the right physique, will never be happy. If happiness is found in a house, a spouse, 2.4 kids, however you work that out, a white picket fence, nice vacations, countless numbers of chances to do whatever you want, then scores of people, literally billions of people, will never have a happy life. And yet Jesus is offering true and lasting happiness to every person, regardless of where they stand financially, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, regardless of anything. Any person can have this happiness. All you have to do is admit you can't get it on your own, that you're not enough. You can't you don't have the resources. You need not something else. You need someone else. And Jesus says, I can be received. All you have to do is trust in me. You can't reach happiness by yourself, he says. So stop reaching for it and instead receive and follow me, he says. Well, to make sure his disciples got this, Jesus now reverses and basically says everything he just said but saying, watch out, don't do these things, you'll have the cursed life. And so we see in verses 24 through 26, the cursed life. And he gives them four woes. Now we don't normally say woe unless we're stopping a horse. So what it means is, watch out, there's danger ahead. This is a warning of what's going to happen if you don't stop what you're doing. It's our fearful yikes, or oh no, or watch out. What you're doing is dangerous. Now, that's not very positive today. That's not what kind of message we should be having. We should be affirming one another, speaking things that are true. And yet, sometimes we need to give the warnings. Drinking while pregnant may cause danger. Live wires, don't touch. And the negatives are really so your life will be better positively. And Jesus here is giving these woes, these warnings, because look, he wants your life to be blessed. Well, the first woe is given in verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now, just on the flip side, being poor was not just you don't have a lot of money. Being rich is not solely referring to how much you have financially. Turn in the Bible just a few chapters over to Luke chapter 12. Read a short parable Jesus gives. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. These verses read, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 12. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And then I'll store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods ahead. For many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. Now we could stop there, and that's where many people stop. I'll oh, see, it's about being rich. 
But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say the problem is storing up. He says, and is not rich toward God. That is the point. The issue is not necessarily, are you, do you have savings? Are you planning for the future? Or even do you have wealth? It is, the issue is, where is your life focused? Is it on being rich just to the things of this earth? Thinking, if I have everything now, then, hey, my life is good. Or are you investing, so to speak, as Jesus says, in God? In the truth of who He is and His plans? Now, many people have taken this thought that, well, being rich is the problem. And that idea is called asceticism. It's the idea that, look, to have something is wrong. Evil possessions are evil in and of themselves. So to be spiritual, you actually need to give everything away. Now, Mother Teresa, she did a lot of really wonderful things. I'm not trying to pick on her too much. But once she was given this wonderful building, it had carpet, hot water connections. And when they got it, they went in, they took out all the carpet. They ripped out all the hot water connections. Now, it didn't seem as though they took the carpet out so they could sell it. It was as though, look, we have things we don't need, so let's get rid of them. But wouldn't it have been helpful for the poor to have hot water? Wouldn't it have been nice for some of them to lay on carpet instead of a hard floor? You know, asceticism says things are evil. And God doesn't says, no, things aren't evil. It's what you're using them for. It's what they're aimed towards. And we can kind of have this smug mindset. Maybe we sacrifice in certain ways and we look around and go, I'm not wasting my money on stuff like that. I'm a little more righteous. I don't buy such extravagant things. And we think we're better because we don't buy this or buy that. And Jesus is saying, look, the issue is not how much we have, but where are we putting our hope and treasure is it all here and now on things? Do our possessions give us all we need? In Revelation 3.17, God is condemning the church at Laodicea. And he says, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, it's as we realize that true poverty is when we don't have God that we can realize that, look, true wealth is having God in the future and other people having Him too. And the sad reality is if you're only rich on the things of this earth, that is all you'll ever have. Randy Alcorn writes, When one of the wealthiest men in history, John D. Rockefeller, died, his accountant was asked, How much did John D. leave? The accountant replied, He left all of it. Where are you putting your hopes of riches? What is it that really makes you rich? Well, Jesus gives a second woe, verse 25. Woe to those who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Now, they're already satisfied. They're not really longing for anything else. Yet one day, Jesus warns, they'll lack the things they now have. And so we have to ask, what will satisfy your appetites. And in our society, we're told, well, it's just a little more. A little bit newer. A little bit faster. A little bit more up to date. You probably have heard of John Wesley. In 1731, he decided that, you know, his lifestyle was sufficient for him to live on. And so he determined, whatever else I get, I'm going to give it 
away. Well, that year his income was 30 pounds, being from British society, and his living expenses were 28 pounds, so he gave 2 pounds away. The next year his income doubled. He earned 60 pounds. He gave 32 pounds away. In the third year, his income jumped again now to 90 pounds. He kept 28 pounds, gave the rest away. The fourth year, he made 120 pounds, still lived on 28 pounds, gave 92 to the poor. Randy Alcorn writes, even when his income rose into the thousands of pounds, he lived simply and quickly gave his surplus money away. One year, his income was slightly over 1,400 pounds, but he gave away all save 30 pounds. So he bumped it up two pounds. Getting a little worldly there at the end. But nonetheless, he said, look, I have a good life. Why do I need more? So if I get more, I'll bless others. Now, am I saying we all need to do this? Well, no. This was what one man before God determined he needed to do. But isn't it revealing of our hearts that if right now any one of us were given $10,000, we probably would get more stuff. We probably would go, oh, now I have a little bit more in savings. And we wouldn't go, oh, I can start blessing those people I thought I would bless if I was given the money. We want more, more, more. And yet Jesus is saying, look, if you're only satisfying appetites here, you're showing that you're not really longing for what will really satisfy you. And so Jesus, he's holding out to us true happiness with the hopes that we can loosen our grip of the things of this earth. Well, third, woe, he says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Now, I'm not sure that much else could describe American culture than that we're bent on always laughing and having a good time. What's the first question we always ask our children when they come back from something? Did you have a good time? That's what, oh, that's what matters. Did you have a good time? Areas of life that we used to realize should be serious are now supposed to be entertaining, lighthearted, fun. Work needs to be casual. School must have wacky, silly days. Church must be entertaining. And even warnings of danger, like when you go on a flight and they're going to show you what to do if there's an emergency, they're now cracking jokes in it on the video and making it funny. Now, I'm not saying we need to be stiff. And there can be no laughter. No, laughter is good for the soul. There's a time to laugh. But there's also a time to be serious. And in our culture, we're bent on everything being funny. And we are in danger. Neil Postman's prophetic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, is matching Jesus' words that if all is laugh and giggles now, then death and weeping will be our future. Well, how can Jesus say this? Well, because if everything is funny and good now, then you're actually quite blind to what is going on in the world. There are people all around us who are suffering, who are in poverty, who have injustice. And if we can go through life going, oh, everything's just perfect, then we're not loving people, which shows that we're really not loving God, because to love God is to love people. And when we see their sorrow, it brings us sorrow. And so Jesus says, look, if you want to eat, drink, and be merry now, but realize it'll be your death for much longer than tomorrow. It'll be an eternal mourning and weeping. Well, fourth and lastly, in verse 26, he says, Woe to you whenever all men speak well of you, 
For in like manner their fathers did to the false prophets. We can say what people want us to say and have everyone love us. But Jesus warns when we do that, we're just like the false prophets of the Old Testament. Who would go around and say, oh no, no, don't listen to Jeremiah saying we're going to be destroyed. There's peace, peace, don't worry. Everything's fine. Nothing bad is really going to happen. And we can do the same thing. Oh, don't worry. Yeah, we just didn't interpret things correctly in the past. That's actually, that's okay. You can pursue that. Peace. We actually were all at peace with God. You know, that's what everyone wants to hear. And yet, if everyone loves what we're saying, then we're no better than the false prophets saying what is untrue. Not only that, Jesus is saying we're showing that we will spend an eternity without him. You know, the vote that matters is not how many likes we get. It's not popularity polls. It's not social trends. The ultimate vote, the ultimate judge is God, and it's his opinion that we should care about. And so Jesus shows that how we relate to others, what we're willing to stand up for, even in the face of being ridiculed, hated, excluded, reveals what we really believe. You know, if we truly believe that God is real, that Jesus rose from the dead, then what does it matter if people hate his message? Yet if this life is all that exists, then why would you keep saying things that everyone hates? Why would we ever go against the crowd? It's only as we have this deep trust that God is real, that Jesus did come and give his life, that we can deal with hatred and lack of approval now. Because we know there will be a much greater satisfaction to come. So this ends the list of things that we want. We want to enjoy. We want good meals. We want being full. We want people to like us. However, Jesus is warning us, if we pursue these to the neglect of God, we'll only enjoy them here and now. As we're wrapping up, I think it's important to realize something that I think we often kind of misunderstand. And that is, Jesus is not saying, don't care about these things. In fact, he is saying you should care about enjoying things, about good meals, about laughing, about people liking you. He's giving us ways, though, that we can get it for a lasting time, not just for a moment. He's warning us, yes, these things aren't bad pursuits in and of themselves, but pursue them in the right time of receiving them, in the right way of getting them. The call is to sacrifice now what is good because an infinite level of greater happiness is held out to us. He doesn't get quoted as much anymore, but most of you have probably at least faintly heard of Jim Elliott. He was a missionary and he went down to the Aka Indians, the Aka tribe, and he knew this truth. He expressed it well. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, the things here, to gain what he cannot lose and those were not empty words for him those are not words that he could just say on and then he went on to living a great life on earth he ended up giving his life leaving behind a wife and a daughter so that the Aka tribe could know Christ in the story the prince and the pauper there's these two characters one is Tom Canty he's a pauper and the other is Prince Edward And he's the prince. And they meet one day, coincidentally, and they think it'd be funny to switch places. But then 
circumstances happen and they get permanently switched. And so the prince is out in the world and everyone thinks he's just a dumb, half-crazy beggar who keeps claiming he's the prince. And people mock him and people ridicule him. And he actually starts getting in a lot of trouble. And he's in danger. And one man named Miles Hinden starts caring for him. And he saves him out of several dangerous situations. And once they're both arrested and Edward just can't keep his mouth shut. And he keeps taunting and saying things. I'm the prince. And so they're going to give him lashes. And Miles Hinden takes the lashes for him. And Prince Edward, who everyone thinks is crazy, says to Miles, One day I'm going to make you an earl. And inside, Hendon again rolls his eyes, thinking, why am I doing this for this kid? And yet, to his astonishment, Prince Edward is the prince. And he one day actually becomes the king. Sorry to run the story for you. And he makes Miles Hendon an earl. He is rewarded with all this stuff. Now that story is, in some ways, not very helpful. In other ways, it is. Because Jesus is the real king. And we don't have to like kind of guess because some crazy person is saying he's the king. We have evidence. He died and rose again. And we don't have to just wishfully hope he's the king or we don't have to help Jesus out. We know that one day he will be recognized for who he truly is. And when he is, he promises, just like Prince Edward, you will be rewarded. It may not look like it now. You may be receiving persecution now. My life might be worse now in many ways, because you've chosen to follow Christ. But he says, rejoice. He says, blessed are you. He says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. He says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. He said, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of me. Rejoice, leap for joy. Are you following him? Are you pursuing him? If so, then you are on the pursuit of true and lasting happiness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, may we pursue what will truly last. Lord, would you give us eyes of faith Lord, we can get discouraged, disheartened, wonder, is it really true? Is it worth it? Lord, as we look at the prophets of old, as we look even at your son, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, may we run the race set before us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.